Listener Production. Automotive commentator and journalist Greg Rust, and this is Rusty's Garage. I recorded this episode in Sydney while visiting legendary driver manager Greg Siddle. These intros I did days later, fittingly, at a racetrack, hence the background noise. Now, if you've never heard of Pee Wee, that's what everyone in the industry calls him, you would probably have a wry smile at that and enjoy the sense of anonymity. But Greg takes calls from big names in the game and they take his. Eddie Jordan, Bernie Eccleston. He worked with Nelson Piquet who would go on to win three Formula One World Championships and he's close to Nelson to this day. The energetic and gifted racer Roberto Moreno is another that he's guided through the often difficult game of doing deals for drives. Roberto is a former F3000 champion, a winner in Champ Car and he won the Australian Grand Prix three times in the early 1980s. Pee-wee's associations with people like Larry Perkins in the early years when LP was doing a tough trekking around Europe and legendary race car engineer and designer Ron Turanak. You'll enjoy those conversations too. Closer to home, Pee-wee has mentored and guided Mark Larkham and Sam Michael. You can find both of them in our Rusty's Garage library. They are very popular episodes too. He helped bring Rubens Barrichello out for some S5000 races in recent years. What a draw card the former Ferrari driver was for the Aussie-based V8 Open Wheel Series. And he was right behind the Van Diemen Formula Ford program and its formal introduction to Australia and much, much more. The thing about Peewee is he listens invariably turns or steers the conversation back to you rather than talking up his own stocks. He's had long associations with manufacturers too, another reflection of the calibre of person he is, his reliability, attention to detail and his loyalty. We sat in the lounge at his home and just talked. He's different to some of the other wheeler-dealer style managers in our game. He acutely knows what things in our sport and the good players are worth. And he keeps a close eye on the junior formula to this day and who the emerging stars are right around the world. I'm proud that he's come on. Larko and Sam Michael helped get Pee Wee over the line on this idea. And he's told me it's likely to be a one-off. I hope that's not the case because there's a lot more stories in his collection of yarns that are still tucked away. Now, we need to be okay with one fact. He doesn't go too deep on some things and that's because he's not the kind to betray confidentialities even decades later. That is just not his way. But there are some very cool names and yarns that you'll hear about in this one and some takeaways for aspiring young drivers and team owners too. Enjoy the convo. You sounded a bit reluctant about coming on here because I think you prefer to be in the background more than telling your story. But the more I have researched this, the more I've discovered some incredible connections you have, the the depth of your experience in this in this sport, and I feel like it's a story worth telling. So can we begin, if you're okay with it, with with early life, what you might want to share? I know Canberra is there and, and you left school or left home at a relatively young age compared to most, I think, didn't you? Uh, yes. At the time, that was unfortunate, but on my life's journey, it was, it was probably a blessing. Was it? What did it, what did it teach you then in, when, in that sense? Survival. Survival. Yeah? Very quickly. Where did it take you to? You you would end up in Darwin. I know we're in the top end, I think. Is, was that the first sort of step or what, what were you doing immediately well, when you were at school? I, I, I did an apprenticeship as a mechanic mm-hmm. and then some friends of mine, had, well, one friend in particular who is still a friend to this day, had gone to Darwin. And so there was plenty of work opportunities in those days. So we're talking uh, early 70s. Mm-hmm. Um so around, I, around sort of mining or something, or what were you? What well, were you I, in? Went, I went there as a mechanic, and then, uh, you know, d- d- there were plentiful of jobs there, mm-hmm. and um, we knew the girl who ran the sort of employment agency, which was a government institution. We knew her socially, and she kept saying, "Look, why don't you come in? We've got some interesting jobs available." So, uh, a friend of mine, we went in, 
And she basically said, well, where do you want to work? A two mile in town, uh, 20 mile out of town or 200 mile out of town. And my friend said, well, let's take the 200 mile. So off we went. And anyway, as it turned out, the 200 mile out of town was uh, a mining facility. It was Queensland Mines. They were drilling for uranium okay. uh, in Narbalak. Um, you're, you're what age here? Uh, 19. Amazing. Yep. Yeah, 19. Yep. So out I went and um, it was um, pretty basic. Uh, there was certainly no um, safety issues uh, or, or safety things out there at the time. Mm-hmm. But I, I learned what to do in drilling. So we're drilling and so you're on off-site. Well, you, I was driving a water truck, which I loathed because you're on call 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Uh, my friend who was off-siting a rig, he didn't like that, so we swapped. So I off-site on a rig. And I was there for four months, I think, and and then I ended up getting promoted to have my own rig, and I was called a a gun driller at the time. But um, so I learned a lot by that, by showing initiative and using your nows and whatever. And and I sort of took that with me on my on my travel. So then I made all this money, a bit like people are doing today, and off I went on my sojourn to be a racing driver. Now, tell me about that because I want to understand where the passion, the love of perhaps cars or racing came from. What are your earliest racing recollections or memories? Well, I think the, the passion started in building my billy carts. Did it? As a kid? <laughs> As a kid. So, and you know, it was pretty old culture. You'd get wheels off a pram or something and then we had a neighbour who was a mechanic and he was always throwing his ball bearings out. So then you made billy cars with ball <laughs> bearings, which set you lower to the ground and gave you more speed. So probably that. And then I raced in Canberra and Trailey speed, Speedway, Speedway. And, and, and Mount Gin at the time. So that's – and then Jack was um, – so this is mid-60s, so Jack had – So Sir Jack, we're talking Sir Jack yeah, Brabham. Yeah, yeah, it had been, just become world champion. So, so I guess that's my love or interest or uh, desire to be involved in the business started then, you know, when I was probably – 14, 15, 16, 17, 18. So. Excellent. Are we talking midgets or we're we talking what sort of speedway were you doing? They were cars. cars. Yeah, they cars. cars. Yeah. Terrific. So from Darwin, you've got enough in the pocket and you decide to do the OE. Did you, you wanted to go to England and uh, or you went yeah. elsewhere in the world? What, what did no, you do? No, no. Well, you went to – so England obviously was the goal. Mm-hmm. And so in those days, <clears throat> um, you know, it was – you got the word through the jungle of how you should do this. So there were two opportunities in those days to go to Europe via America. Mm-hmm. And um, you heard that it was very hard to get work there. Um, or you go through South Africa. So the, the, this friend of mine um, from the Darwin days, uh, we decided to go through South Africa. So we went to South Africa. Rhodesia? Is that what you said you went? Well, we went to South Africa initially and then we worked there. Mm-hmm. So it was easy to get work. Um You'd spun a few yarns along the way that you were coming, like like what? But you loved South Africa. You didn't like Australia. And <laughs> blah blah blah. And 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 dare I say it, you were white. And so you got work. And then I loved that. And then and um and then I wanted to go to Rhodesia. So then I went up to Rhodesia for three months. Mm-hmm. And then um that was that. And then I thought, well, this Europe thing's still there. I better get over there. So then I went over to the Munich for the Olympic Games. And um. And then all of a sudden, I loved Munich. I mean, this, talking about a guy that grew up in Canberra, which is pretty insular, 25,000 population at the time. And so that opened my eyes. So then I worked in Munich for probably a year, and I remember hitchhiking all around Europe to the Grand Prix. Awesome. You know, what, Spa did, or where did you go? Yeah, what everywhere. places? Did you? Yeah, Spain, uh, Paul Ricard, uh, Zeltweg uh, at the time, or the, the, the races, hitchhiked over to England, came back again. Take people there. Who were some of the heroes, the stars of the time that you were able to watch trackside at these places? Who did you? Oh, Emerson. Yes. Emerson and Nicky. Uh, Mario Andretti. Yeah. Yeah, Mario. Well, I think when Mario raced, I was already involved. I was in Europe at that time. Hmm. But Jackie was racing, Francois Sever. Beautiful. Um, yeah. Beautiful. And so then off to England, I said, well, I better get on with this motor racing caper. So, then- <laughs> so I mean, you pre-internet days, this is, so are you. Are you writing to someone with a, a, a dream? Were you adamant you wanted to go and work for this person? What was the what was the mission? Well, what I wanted the... to drive. So you? Then, so you go to England, and and so what I did, I I joined up a, a driving school run by David Purley mm-hmm. and Derek Bell. Okay, they had it down at Goodwood. Yep. So then I started driving these Formula Fords. But then, well, I had zero money, of course, um, like probably every Australian who went to Europe. But I just felt that what I wanted to achieve. You know, as a race driver, I probably couldn't achieve it. 
When did that dawn on you? At you, you're what age, and and at what point of the European adventure? I was probably twenty two or something. Okay. Yeah, which at the time was pretty young for you hmm. know to be involved in the sport. So then that was sitting there at the same time. Then I, uh, 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 the house we lived in Acton, and uh, a, a chap there was a draftsman, and he worked with another guy, uh, another Australian who lived in Ealing, and uh, they were talking all the time and. The guy in my house would say, oh, I've got this crazy guy in our house who loves motor racing. And this other guy had said, oh, well, I've got a crazy guy in my house who's his race driver, which was Larry. Larry so, Perkins. So then we got introduced to one another. And for whatever reason, Larry and I just hit it off. At the time, he wasn't doing anything. So we're talking 74. He'd already stopped uh, racing his GRD. And then mid-74, I think it was mid-74, Ron had come back to the UK. Ron Turanek, yes. He'd Ron Turanek. Mm-hmm. He'd, he'd come home. He'd sold everything, except he hadn't sold the Brabham factory. He owned that. Okay. And Bernie leased that off him, although Bernie had owned the Formula One team and the Brabham name, name and whatever. Yep. And then when he came back, he uh, Ron was sort of uh, not happy back here. And bear in mind, he'd been in England for probably 30, 30 odd years. Mm. So he went back and then he decided to start building cars again, which was a Rolt. And he was aware of Larry um, and rang Larry and said, listen, I'm going to build these cars. I'll give you the first car that we build. But in the meantime, I uh, bought this little factory in Woking, um, which was an old electrical factory or steel factory. And it was just a mess. So we went and Larry and I spent endless days there ripping it up ripping all the junk out and painting the walls and putting in proper doors to get a truck in and out and whatever so that started the journey with uh with, with ron turnack amazing 74 and then larry got that first car in in 75 so tell me about life with or working with ron turnack i mean people know um you know the story of legends if you will uh, he and sir jack and the things that they had sort of achieved what was he like to to work with and to be around and things like that. Bloody difficult. Was he? <laughs> Bloody difficult. What did you learn he from him He was then? a very hard taskmaster. Hmm. Um, and you had to work and you couldn't talk. What did I learn from him? Well, probably one of the, the better things is you got into this industry and probably like a lot of it is there's a lot of charlatans. Mm-hmm. And Ron was far from being a charlatan. He hmm. was an honest, decent clever guy hmm. so to be around someone like that in the industry from from the from the get-go you just you just had to look and see how he operated i mean okay there are things that you probably didn't agree with but the basic probably the the thing the two things that i reflect now on life he taught me humility did he and he didn't know he did mm-hmm. um and he taught me honesty hmm. and in honesty in the sense that if you buy something or you owe something to someone, you 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 pay that person and what what they're due. But the humility was <clears throat> was quite funny, really. It was probably some years later um, with Nelson, and I'd go in there Monday morning after every Formula Three race, and and I remember once we'd probably won six or seven races, and I was quite upbeat and very excited about all this, you know. And I was telling Ron and. And he's a uh, right-hand man at the time, a Frenchman called Alain Fenn. You know, basically what a great job we're doing and, you know, pumping up your tyres. And, mm. and Ron was just looking at me and not saying anything. And I'm thinking, well, why isn't he saying anything? And I just sort of suddenly dawned on me why. I let it go and carried on the conversation. But when I went out, I said, well, he didn't say anything to you, Pee, you idiot, because you just look what he's done. Mm. And I'm telling you about, you know, we'd won six or seven races. <laughs> so that taught me not to sort of, that's humility, just mm. do your thing. And if you're loving and enjoying it and getting paid, well, mm. that's enough. Let others talk about it. Honesty, humility, that leads us to kind of integrity, which is a big thing for you, mm. mate, isn't it? And you obviously, you know, figured that out very early on in, in the school of life. Mm-hmm. And it's been a constant for you the mm-hmm. entire way along, I think, hasn't mm-hmm. it? Was it people like Ron? Was it life experience? What? What? How did you know? I I know you could take a call from Eddie Jordan as we sit here. You could get 
you know, have good conversation with a Bernie Eccleston. You could, I know all of those things. You never gloat about that. I, I, I know that. But how did a young man who left home relatively early learn these massive life skills and garner that sort of um, trust, rapport with with these world champions, with with people of high stature in in motor racing? Where did you learn that? Well. Property I started learning back from when I was 15. I mean, you know, when you're out there in the world, hmm. you know, and you're on your own, so to speak, you know, you learn pretty quickly. Hmm. And so I guess I learned it from that. But as I said, once again, I started being, uh, so from the get-go, I was around Ron Turanak and I just saw how he operated and how people r- related and operated, to, you know, and, and, and put that back to him. To him. Hmm. And then I started to also understand that if you just keep those values and keep going, hmm. you don't have to say anything. You just do not have to tell me because other people will ask. And I know that if um, people want to find out of me, they won't come to me. They'll go and ask other people. Mm. And then, and that'll speak for itself. And I just, some things come back to me and they just say, trust. Mm. If you want to speak to Peewee, trust Mm. straight away, like absolutely straight away. And so, you know, I've... I don't know how I'd learned it. That's just how it was in my DNA to mm. to operate like that, and it's been like that ever since. Were you a good observer of people and what people totally. were like? Yeah, I'm, totally. I, I, I sense totally. that you can totally. Yeah, and also a good observer of the the charlatans and the fools, oh, yeah? of which there's plenty in the pit lane all the time. How'd you deal with them? Walked around them. Did you? If I saw them, I just walked by. <laughs> don't say anything. Could you almost sense that from the get-go? You knew what well, someone I mean, was yeah, like. Some and... of the people you you've heard the stories, and secondly, you know they've they've got to you as well. And mm. you know they'll, they'll only get to you to me once, but yeah, you just I just avoid them. Gotcha. There's no point trying to re-educate those type of people. That's if how they're, they're doing programmed. that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. That's how they are. That's in their DNA. Mm. So I just best to leave it alone. Larry Perkins, let's come back there in this this combo. I mean, you guys still get on, I think, super well to this day. I'm sure there's probably been, you know, moments along the way. But what is it about LP? I mean, what was he like in those early days too? Bloody fun. Was he? <laughs> in what way? <laughs> it was bloody fun. He tells some good stories with my, my mates, Daryl Beattie, when they've been dirt bike riding in the middle of the Never Never and, you know, Simpson Desert and so on. But, yeah, that was early days for him, wasn't it? And Yeah, so 75, I mean, we... So we set off the two of us. Mm-hmm. I was a gopher. Uh, knew very little about, uh, you know, fettling a race car. So basically, you know, Larry fettled the major stuff and I did the minor stuff. And so off we went. And we just literally had no money. Um, Were you big on presentation and doing it right and, and, and slick no, organised? No. no? Not then? Se- well, have you seen photos of 1975? <laughs> The, the presentation, the presentation wasn't very good, I can tell you, but that didn't matter to Larry at the time. But, but look, it was just fun, and we and and they created the European Championship halfway through the season, and and Larry had won two of the races, so he became the European champion, which was a bit of a fervor. look. The the dis, the big disappointment that year was not winning Monaco. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were reasons behind that, which you know I'll just leave it leave it alone in history. But that would have been a a great uplift for him at the time mm-hmm. and certainly for Rolt. Um, we um, did European races uh, as well as the UK races. Um, and as I said, we just had no money and we just continually try to manipulate ways how we could get things done for nothing. You know, and a classic example, which I, I seemed uh, reflected on when I knew you were coming, was that we had to go and do a race in um, Ulitzring in Denmark. Mm-hmm. Or didn't have to. We were going to do a race, and we were in Europe, and we'd taken the truck to somewhere in north of Holland or north of Germany, and left it there. Came back to Rolt, and so well, how are we going to get to Denmark? And because we had no money, and uh, so another friend of ours comes. So we had two sets of tyres, some body panels, and had no idea how we we're going to get to Europe. So we thought well, we'll go by boat. So we went down to um, Dover mm-hmm. um, and thought, well, how are we going to get on this boat without paying? So we got to, we got down to Dover uh, about three hours before the boat was to work out how people, not 
customers, but how workers and everything got on the boat through the back of the boat. So we sat on the side of the hill. I remember reflecting, well, how this could work. And so we then worked out how we could get on this boat being workers and whatever. And so we did such a thing. And then we got on there with two sets of tires and body panels and hid somewhere. Whoa, I've got no idea. But anyway, that was just – we were just up to things the whole time. time. Yeah. Uh, to get and, and in those days, you know, you could really push the envelope a fair bit. Yes. I mean, the, the things we did in those days, if you did now, well, you'd be locked up instantly. Plus every city, major city in the world or port has cameras and, yes. you know, or facial recognition. So, mm. But look, it was a good year, a really good year. We enjoyed it despite the hardships. Um, he won the Monza Lotteria. I mean, that was another issue with Ron, you know, because Ron would always give you a list a mile long to have done before you go to a race. And some of them were just finicky and unnecessary or could be done at the track. Mm -hmm. And I remember when we did the Monza Lotteria and Ron had gone home for lunch, which he always did. Norma would always make his lunch and he'd always go home for dinner and come back to the factory. So it was a Saturday and he went home for lunch and Larry said, bugger this, we're out here. So we threw everything in the truck. And off we went to to Italy, and he obviously Ron had come back and noticed it had gone, and then he hadn't heard us for a couple of days, and he rang the agent and said, "Are we in Italy?" And they said, "Yes," and because once again we had no money, mm -hmm. and we booked into the hotel where everyone else was, and uh, Gunnar Nielsen was racing for March at the time, the Works March car, and Larry said to Gunnar, he said, "Look," he told him what we'd done, we'd just piled the um, the car into the truck with all the spares, and, and Ron would have given us some travel money. Mm -hmm. And he told Gunnar that um, we don't have any money. And he said, now, and the prize money at Monza Lottery was quite good, actually. And he asked Gunnar, could you cover our hotel bill, which he, he said he would. Wow. Um, but as it turned out, um, we won the Monza Lottery. Real. <laughs> and I don't know how, it might have been $10,000 at the time. I know it was, it was a significant amount, amount of, of money. money. But it, yeah. So you're playing gopher at, you know, at a point along the way here. How do you merge from that into managing people and managing race drivers. When did that sort of thing start to emerge? How much more did you do? Oh, pretty well. It happened pretty quickly for me. I mean, I mean, it was another reflection back, you know, when um, I worked in the in the jungle, you know, mm. that I'd, I was only there for six months and I, or whatever the time was, four months and became a driller. You know, the, the normal time or the expected time for to offside on drill rigs because there's an understanding how to get core out of the ground and not wash it away. I mean, there were technical mm -hmm. things to, to learn about that. And so that taught me you didn't necessarily have to do that sort of perceived apprenticeship or whatever understanding of it if you knew what you were doing. Mm. And so, and I felt the very same with motor race. So the next year, Larry went off and drove for Lou Stanley, I think it was, PRM. Mm -hmm. What are we talking, 76 here? 76. Uh, yeah. Anyway, so out of that, a guy came from from Denmark um, and bought a car, and he was fully loaded with sponsorship and whatever. He was a, he was a talker, but anyway, as it uh, in fact, his name was Talker Tiring, um, but he was a yapper, I should say. Anyway, so he uh, had bought the car, and um, he asked me, um, you know, to help him around the ropes. But anyway, he got hit by a car and broke his leg. Um, looked the wrong way and. England, sure thinking he was on the other side of the mm -hmm. road. Anyway, so the, he had to get rid of the car. Then some Dutch people arrived with Boy Heyer, a young Dutch guy, and with money, and they wanted a car. So, and it was hard to get a car at the time because mm -hmm. the production levels weren't weren't so quick. So, uh, the, these Dutch people asked me to get involved, which I did. So then, you know, they knew nothing about English Formula Three. They knew very very little about Formula Three period, mm -hmm. or indeed English Formula Three. So, but I did because of you know, what we've been doing with Larry. And so, oh, I don't know, I sort of got into that sort of managerial role pretty well straight away. Straight you know, away. I employed mm. mechanics and we weren't successful. Boy was very, very quick. Mm -hmm. He wasn't smart, but he was quick. Um, the next year was Jeffrey uh, and the next year was Nels. Amazing. And, oh, I, don't, I don't know, Greg. I mean... I have sort of my own philosophies. I mean, I, what I, is that? I, I, I see life as a bit of an opportunistic. And, and one of the things that I probably taught my kids and say to young people, I mean, how do you look at life? And and for me, I, I see life or had seen life as a wave. And some people, in, in, in and not everyone's the same and mm -hmm. want to do what you want to do or and the people just want to be, uh, you know, a milkman or a postman. But 
in life there's a wave and some people jump on the wave mm -hmm. and fall off it and get back on the wave and ride it. Some people see the wave and say, well, I don't want to get on that wave mm. or they'll go and touch the wave and no, no, this is not for me. And so I always felt that I wanted to get on that wave, whatever. So and, this is my, keep riding it. this is my, this is me, my, mm. my mm. analysis of, of life. And I got on that wave and I, and, and I, and I rode it. Mm. And, and then those other things that, that I had around me, um, the values of which the other day is it's called trust. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it, it looks after you. Mm. It, ju it just back. does. And then mm. with Nels, you know, things happened really quickly. We were successful and, and, um, the opportunities were there, you know, the, uh, you know, two thirds of the season to get into F1 and, mm -hmm. and to deal with team owners. And so I did all that sort of contractual stuff for Nels at, at the time. And of course, then he went to Bernie and, and then, um, and then, uh, for three years and he was locked up by Bernie for three years. And then, you know, what do I do now? And I didn't particularly want to run my own team again. I did, I didn't want to do that. Mm -hmm. So then Roberto came from Brazil through Nelson. So we're jumping around here. Let, let's, let's, um, drill down on a couple of these. Firstly, Nelson is Nelson PK. So where was the first time you met him and uh, what was your immediate reaction to him i mean you know he's gone on to achieve some great things obviously but what was the first sort of um well i'd met him the year before i saw him one of the races in europe you know just aware of him but mm -hmm. met in england at, at rolt oh my favorite crazy is that what you thought crazy bloody brazilian <laughs> ironically you ha you have now when you look back on it great connections with lots of south american races don't you so crazy like crazy crazy brazilian yeah and, but just look, we were a similar age. We're still friends to this day. Yeah. In fact, he rang me last week as he generally does at two or three o'clock in the morning. Couldn't <laughs> care what the time zone is. I haven't returned his call yet, but we're still very good friends. Look, we just had the same goals and achievements of life. I mean, he was obviously wanting to be a race driver, and I was a bit unsure where where I was going to go. So we, we were a similar age, uh, virtually the same age, and we just got on, mm -hmm. and we knew. The, the, the values of dealing with people, he had the same philosophy. Mm -hmm. Didn't go near charlatans or fools. Yep. Trusted people, a man of his word, just all those things. Yep. Base principles. Yeah. 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 And and it's and then, you know, as I said, we just became well, we became friends out of that out of that relationship. So so, so were you looking because you become a great leader of people, right? And and. You know, engineers and and race drivers to a de degree. I think I think Sam Michael in helping me for this podcast said sometimes we get focused on the technical transaction. You know, get, getting it getting it done kind of thing. Whereas you tend to look more broadly at the people, I guess, and how you can make it work as a, either a, a cohesive team or the people you need to work with for obviously the you know driver arrangements that you've you've done and, and so on. So were you looking at Nelson as as uh, fast racing driver with with talent, or were you looking at, you know, um, someone uh, that you could, you know, that had the right backing, you could work with the right people, and collectively you could stitch something together? How did you sort of look at that? Does that make sense? My question. I don't know if it does. Yeah. Um, no. Look, for me at the time, it was just an opportunity yeah. to work with another driver, mm -hmm. and. Was he looking for representation for management or something or other? What was he looking uh, for? Well, he just needed a hand. He, he needed to. Yeah, he wanted people around him that mm -hmm. knew, particularly in England, because now he'd come to England, mm -hmm. right? The previous year he was in in Europe. In fact, when he first came out, I think he bought a March from memory, mm -hmm. which was not the car to buy. So we're talking 77 there. Then he, I think he bought a Rolt mm -hmm. towards the latter part of the year from memory. And then he then he came to England and bought a Rolt. And then, but he, he was wise and smart enough to know that he couldn't achieve all the things because he had two other people with him, mm -hmm. a young gopher Brazilian kid and a, and, and a guy, Pedro, who's still a who's worked with Nels post motor racing all through his business auto track mm -hmm. and still lives, lives within Nelson's compound. So Pedro uh, was a hands-on maker of things. Um, so Nelson knew he needed more people around. So then I came. And then we, because we were growing, growing, we then had to get a, a, a proper mechanic, a South African, a South African guy. So then, then we had the nucleus thing. But Nels could see he wanted to put all those things together. Mm -hmm. um, 
and I became part of that. And then I guess it came back to I started doing things that was trust. Mm. You know, I started doing things that, you know, that particularly the latter part of that year with the contracts, talking to sponsors, just talking to the European uh, races we did for start money. And I mean, all that, he just left all that to me. Mm-hmm. And that was the trust component of it. But, and the goal was he, he obviously wanted to be in Formula One, no matter what. Mm-hmm. And that, but that was his driven goal. Mm-hmm. It probably wasn't my driven goal. Uh, and, and as it turned out, I've never actually worked in Formula One directly myself. Mm-hmm. Um, but we just achieved a lot in a very small space of time. Time. Hmm. Very small space of time, which was, you know, probably seven months. In fact, at the end of the year, Ron had said to me, uh, or maybe the beginning of the next year, he said, listen, Peewee, he said, what you guys did last year, he said, you would have won the Formula One World Championship five years ago because we had two cars by the end of the year and we were continually down at Goodwood testing and testing and testing. But yeah, Ron said five years ago, we would have won the World Championship for what we did. So, mm. Were you understanding the business? Were you understanding, okay, this is worth this or you should be paid that and and where you were immersed in learning all that all that sort of stuff, be it uh, sponsorship, be it what a a driver was worth contractually, and and did you understand the depths of the contract, or, or or you treated it with the principles you talked about before that you could you could structure it in such a way that you know so long as we deliver X, it's worth that. Correct. Well, the, the, yeah, the, the contracts were. I mean, some of the stuff that I didn't know, I would go to a lawyer and ask to mm-hmm. just double check things. Yep. But valuations, well, those to the contract we were told we were paying money, we weren't being paid. So mm-hmm. um, then the contract with Bernie, well, uh, you know, you you just don't negotiate people like that. You just don't. I, I would never seek to know the the commercial parts of that. That's that's not for anyone to know. But but I'm intrigued what he was like to deal with. What was he What was he like to? Because I in the handful of times I've been able to meet him or interview him, he's always two steps ahead in the chess game, isn't he? Totally. Always. <laughs> always. And that's why that's why I end up where he was mm. or, or what he became. Mm. He just was two two steps ahead. Look, look I, I had a few things to do with him over the years, mm-hmm. uh, particularly, um, you know, they asked uh, me to go to Brabham, uh, which I declined. Why? Um, why? Oh, I just didn't want to be part of that. Mm-hmm. So not, not him necessarily. I just didn't want to be part of a person in, um, in, you know, in, in an organization. Mm-hmm. I was still trying to find my way. In fact, if you speak to my wife, she probably tells you I'm still trying to find my way. Um, um, I think you've done all right. Where, 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 you know, where I was going. So I declined mm-hmm. that. But look, I've done a few things with Bernie over the years and absolutely no problem. Mm-hmm. And it was phone. There was no contracts, no nothing. And I have to say, even the last years I saw him, he, he would always, always say hello to me. Whatever, so. Terrific. Pee-wee's so-called media manager Mark Larkham is in the Rusty's Garage Library. There's some absolutely great laughs in that podcast, including a yarn on the data acquisition project they gave an ambitious young engineer, Sam Michael. So I did a deal with this mob in Melbourne, and I can't—I think they were called Data Communications, maybe they still, and they did weather recording stations, right? <laughs> so I thought, oh yeah, that's, that's gathering data, weather recording. They take a sample, you know, once every thirty days, three weeks. What we actually need is a sample, you know, two hundred samples a second. Here, Sam, can you use this? <laughs> As Molly would say, do yourself a favour and listen to that one. Now back to Rusty and Siddle. Is it just me or does that sound like a law firm? Roberto Moreno. Oh. He's been on my buddy Tom Clarkson's podcast, F1 Beyond the Grid, and, and you know, he has this, this uh, personality, this effervescence, this energy about him. Where did you first meet him and how did that all go? Well, I first met him. So at the end of '78, we, uh, Jill and I, went to Brazil for Christmas, mm-hmm. New Year. Uh, stayed in Nelson's, and he had introduced me to Roberto or to Bash at that time. <clears throat> and Nels felt that as a pure race driver, he 
always felt because they raced go-karts together, but mm -hmm. the, the Roberto was better than him. Um, and he wanted to help him. So we were in Brazil and Nels spoke to me about it. Um, he had to go to England to do Formula Ford because he hadn't done any open wheeler racing in Brazil. Mm -hmm. um, I knew nothing about Formula Ford. Um, so I knew, uh, Kenny Atchison mm -hmm. and then Kenny had won virtually every race in 78 in Formula Ford in a, a car called a Royale. Mm -hmm. And so I rang him and, um, he said, yeah, look, blah, blah, blah. These are the people. So I went back to England probably early January. And so I went and got in contact with Royale and, um, Mike Cornock, I think his name was Mike, was Cornock, who owned Royale. Mm -hmm. So I rang him and I said, blah, blah, blah. And I guess he was aware of who I was. So he said, well, come to the factory. So I, so here I, I go off to this factory um, late in the afternoon. It was a pea super of a day. You could not see in front of yourself in daylight. And by the time I got there, it was dark. So it was an old Nissan hut. Um, I couldn't. I can't remember where it was, but anyway, I found the place, got there about 4.30 and I walk in and Cornet wasn't there, but there were two guys working and one was fabricating and one was facilitating a car. Mm -hmm. So I struck up a conversation with those two guys and um, we said, okay. And and then as it turns out, I said to them, what's your name? And he said, my name's Rory. And uh, the other chap said, my name's Pat. So her Pat and Rory, and so I ended up buying a car off them, and the three of money that had been raised back in Brazil. Anyway, the, the Rory uh, was Rory Byrne, and and the Pat was Pat Simmons. Um, so I got to know them back in those days. So, so we set off in this Royale. It was the wrong car to buy, mm -hmm. um, as it turned out, because Van Diemen. It was a good car. Yep. Uh, Van Diemen came out with a better car in in '79, and. At the end of that year, um, you know, every manufacturer, Van Diemen, Royale, Swift, uh, Hawk, all talking to me about having Roberto the next year because you could see that it was a talent. Mm -hmm. But anyway, we, we decided to go with, with Ralph. I think we had to give him 2,000 pounds for all the championships. And so we started with Ralph and, um, uh, you know, he just – smoked it and then we had a relationship with a guy called david minister with minister engines mm -hmm. who built a, a particular engine for roberto uh, which was known as a patch engine which became quite infamous over the years so yeah so that was that was the, the start of roberto in the second year and so i was virtually doing anything nels was adamant when he came to england he wasn't going to live with you're not living with me you're going to live with people to so you learn English, mm -hmm. so we put him with an English where he rented a room, and and Jill at the time started teaching me English. So this is your wife you're talking about, who's so, yeah. yeah. now my wife? Yeah, has taught him English. So you know he was probably like a, a younger brother. And then the next year, because we won everything, then we started doing Formula Three deals, which so I started doing all those sort of deals as well. And then and then oh I don't know, do you make mistake? Do you call things you do in this business a mistake or? A regret. Don't have regrets. I, I, you I do, don't you make know. the best decision you have at the time, don't you? So, yeah. one of the things we did do, um, Colin Chapman. Um, so we now we're in Formula Three. Colin Chapman had said to PC Peter Collins, "Why haven't we got young drivers on our books? Because other teams had." So, PC had rung me, and uh, and um, said, "Look, you know, we want to do this deal with Roberto." I said, "You, you sure?" I said, "He's only got in the form." Yeah. Colin's going off his tree. We need to get so anyway. We ended up signing. A, well, they ended up signing the contract in Brazil because I, I think that time Brazil was the first Grand Prix, and I probably didn't want the contract signed. But mm -hmm. there was just so much pressure that we signed. And I said, on reflection, there are another opportunity. Well, first of all, the car was rubbish mm -hmm. um, at the time, and then the next year when Roberto actually got in the car at Sanford and didn't qualify. Because I think they kicked Nigel out the race before, because he, or Derek Daly, I can't remember. Um, and then another opportunity came up with with Frank. Uh, Frank had gone to Nelson and said, "Look, I think he said Royton was walking out. 
what do you think? Um, this is prior to Nels had already been the world champion one year. And he said, look, you should sign Marino. So they came to us and Colin just wouldn't. They said, okay, you can have him, but we want him back. And so there was a big opportunity that, that, that had gone. Really. Wow. So you're talking here, just to sort of join some dots for people, we're talking Frank Williams, obviously. Yeah, sorry, Frank yeah. Williams, yeah. yeah. So Frank, Frank, yeah, had gone to Nelson and said, uh, who do you think? And he said, you should take this young kid, being Roberto. Mm. And um, so that discussion happened. But, yeah, um, um, Colin said, no, I mean, I had this discussion with PC, yeah. not with Colin. Mm -hmm. And uh, PC had said, um, well, he can go, but, you know, we want him back. And Frank just wouldn't entertain that, so... So that was opportunity missed, you feel? Very opportunity missed, yeah. Hmm. How did you, you know, because then there's the reality of the business and how tough it can be hmm. at times and uh, how do you deal with that and then also keep moving on because you want to look after Roberto and, you hmm. you know, you felt like it was perhaps a missed opportunity but you can't, it's a game that doesn't stop. You can't, you've got to look on to the next thing, don't well, you? Well, we're still with Lotus so hmm. it's not as if… There was nothing. There yeah. was nothing. We're hmm. still with Lotus. Hmm. So, um, but the opportunity with, with Frank was to drive the car straight away. With Lotus, he was, well, I don't think we called it reserve driver in the day, but, you know, he was just, he was just on their books, so to speak. So, mm. so there was still that opportunity, but as it time went on, it, it, it didn't materialize. So, mm. so then, so what did we do? We sort of, you know, we need to get his status up again or his reckoning up again. And so now in, we're into 81 mm -hmm. and, um, or we're still in 81, I should say. And then, uh, Bob Jane came on the scene, uh, in Australia. Uh, I think the previous year they had a race at Sandown mm -hmm. where I think they might've brought some Formula One cars out. But he wanted to stage an Australian Grand Prix. It may not have had Formula Correct. One status, but it, but he wanted to get a Grand Prix happening there and to get some big names. Well, he wanted the Formula One. His ultimate goal was to have Formula, Formula One. One. Okay. And so he uh, then Atlantic had come to Australia or mm -hmm. Mondial, I can't remember what it was called here. Um, I think it was called Atlantic here and was Mondial in Europe. And he said that he's going to put this race on at the end of 81. And uh, Rolt had an agent in Australia at the time, Graham Watson, mm -hmm. who had actually sold a few cars here. Mm -hmm. And then he'd been in contact with, uh, with Ron saying this opportunity, blah, blah, blah. And then I was aware of Graham because we had gone to New Zealand in 78 with Larry mm -hmm. and Graham and David Mackay. Summer, yeah. Um, so I knew who Graham was and he was telling Ron about these opportunities. So then Graham rang me and I said, well, listen, why don't – I'd really like to get Roberto out there for that. Mm. And um, and I said, look, if we can do that, I said, I'll ask Nels to come to do the race with, you know, to come to Australia. Yep. And so we amongst ourselves agreed with that. Ron loaning the cars initially so then they could be on sold after. So no funds had to be put up there for the cars. And um, Nelson agreed with me, yes, okay, he'll do it. He hadn't spoken to Bernie at the time. So then they spoke to Bob Jane. And of course I wanted money mm -hmm. uh, for Nelson and for Roberto. And then Bob Jane had told Graham Watson, well, I'll pay for Nelson, but I'm not paying for this other bloke, this Marino bloke. And I, Graham told me, I said, well, Graham, there'll be no deal. Mm, it's a package. <laughs> uh, you know, if, if Nelson's coming, so is Roberto. Mm -hmm. Anyway, that went back to Bob. And I I heard that Bob took a bit of umbrage about that. And I thought, um, who the F is this little bloke telling me what people I'll – Bring to Australia, and anyway, he I had heard that he'd rang Alan Jones, and then asked Alan, you know, mm -hmm. what the hell this was all about. And he said, "Well, you better listen to him if you want Nelson." Mm -hmm. So anyway, we did the deal. Um, I got Nelson uh, good money at the time, um, Roberto a lot less. Uh, uh, Nelson went and spoke to Bernie. Bernie mm -hmm. said, "No problem." Excellent. And whatever money he's earned, it's yeah, amongst us. Yep. And so out we came, and so that was eighty one, and I think Pross came, maybe Lafitte came, mm. uh, maybe one or two others, and of course we won the race. Mm. 
And he won, if, I'm, if memory serves, I think he won three of those in the end, Roberto, didn't he? Well, in 81 we won. And mm-hmm. so the next year the phone call came. We said, no, okay, now we've got Marino locked in, haven't we? <laughs> the reigning champion. <laughs> and, and what about Nelson? So I brought, we went back the next year. Uh, we got flogged. I think there might have been a bit of engine sort of improvements uh-huh. with other cars. I'll mm-hmm. leave it at that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nelson came again. Next year, Roberto again. Alan drove as his teammate. Yep. Then the next year, I mean, halfway through the year, um, um, you know, they'd, I was out here and, and they said, well, can you get Nicky Lauder? And I just laughed. And and, and, and Bob had a right-hand man called Alan Coleman. Um, and I just laughed, Alan. I said, you just, you won't have the money. And so um, I came up with a figure. I don't know why at the time, but I mean, I it was a hundred thousand dollars, so that was eighty four. Which but that's was a, a lot of money then. Yeah. Significant amount of money, and mm. they said okay. And so, I um, had rung Nels again, and said, "Can you speak to Nikki about doing this race?" And of course, I guess this comes back into this trust thing that mm-hmm. if a guy like Nels goes to Nikki and says, "Listen," go and race with this peewee bloke in Australia mm. and Marino, then you don't need contracts or whatever. Mm. So, yep. And then, so then that happened. Then I got this absolutely tirade of a phone call from Ron, uh, Ron Dennis we're talking about now. Mm-hmm. How dare you do a deal with my driver? And, <laughs> and of course then Ron got on the phone telling me, this is what I want, you know, money and oh, umpteen air tickets and, and then Ron was because I knew Ron uh, Dennis through you know the F three days, and mm-hmm. particularly when <clears throat> with Nelson and he had a another young Brazilian called Chico Serra, mm-hmm. um, who we wiped. Um, and so, you know, I said Ron, and you know he's threatening me, I'll never work in motor racing. And I said, all right, Ron, okay, blah blah blah. So I just rang Nelson and said, listen, Ron's on the warpath. And he, Nelson said, don't worry, I'll ring Nicky. So Nicky. It obviously rung Ron and I guess, I don't know, maybe told him to pull his head in or keep out of it. So anyway, that came out. And so, you know, once again, we're sort of running with Roberto and, and then Nicky came, of course, and um, and Keki, I brought Keki out as well. Keki Rosberg. Keki Rosberg, yes. Yeah, so. come, come back. We're rattling off some awesome names here, which I love. Firstly, your manager, Mark Larkham, who we'll get to. <laughs> I've had a conversation with him um, for this too. He says there's a good story about Nicky around the Australian Grand Prix and, and and a comment he made about, I can't remember if I've got the story right here, but you may have looked perhaps a bit stressed or something and Nicky smiled and looked at you and said, yeah, but just put your hands in your pockets and you'll feel the like the coin or the earnings or something or other from this and you'll come right. Well, have I got that story right? What was, well, the, what was you, that? <laughs> I don't know. You, if you've got... got- You've got two stories mixed into one. So no, I'll go no. back to the pocket one first. Okay. <laughs> the pocket one was many years ago prior to that, or, or might have been at the same time. N- Nicky was not in Formula One driving, so it was that period. And he was an ambassador role with BMW. Mm-hmm. And he wasn't called an ambassador then. It was called whatever at the time. Yeah. Everyone's an ambassador now. And he was telling me once that he he, he would go to these functions and basically talked to what he was a bunch of wankers. He said um, that, didn't he? But the, he was being paid to do that. Mm-hmm. And so he said, listen, PV, how I got around that was, <laughs> he, so we're talking Deutschmarks. Yeah. He said, how I got around that, he said, I got a 1,000 Deutschmark and I put it in my pocket. And he said, so when I went to these functions and talked to these wankers, he said, I, what am I doing here? And he said, I'd put my hand in my pocket and I'd feel this thousand Deutschmark. And he said, ah, that's why I'm here. Okay. <laughs> so that was that one. The other story was with, with, with the money was here in Australia. And um, I don't know whether I can mention all the names because some of them are still alive. But basically I'd got him all that money. I got Keki uh, half of that money or a third of that money and Roberto less again. And so there were two opportunities. Um, there was a they had a celebrity race, mm-hmm. and they um, wanted Nikki and Keki 
to do the celebrity race. Mm -hmm. So the organizers come to, came to me and said, would they do it? And I said, well, uh, you know, I'll ask them. And then of course, Keki and Nikki are the sharpest tax. So you will do it. We want to be paid. Mm -hmm. So that was one thing. The next thing was, um, the organizers from Adelaide through channel nine, I think at the time mm. had gone to Bob and wanted Nikki and I think Keki to go to Adelaide to meet John Bannon because now Bannon was thinking about getting a Formula One. Yeah, it was in play, wasn't it? It, it was, was in play. Mm -hmm. And so I went to Nikki and Keki again and said, look, and they said, well, yeah, we want to be paid. So I got Nikki and Keki 10,000 each for driving the Nissan or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. And then I got them 15,000 each for the, the, um, to go to Adelaide. And shake hands and what have you. <laughs> and I said, that's really good guys. And they said, yeah. And I said, well, okay, I've done. I said, what am I going to get out of this? What am I going to get out of this deal? So Nikki looked at Keki. And so now we're talking about the slave race. She says, yes. listen, PV, because if you won the race, you got the car. <laughs> and Nikki says, PV, we will win the race. And of course, they as did. it turned out, there was a bit of shenanigans going on behind with Nikki and someone else, which I won't name because mm -hmm. he's still alive, but Keki duly won the race. And when then Keki, they came into the pit and they pulled the keys out and gave you the keys. Here's your car. I love it. So there's my, there was my sort of commission, <laughs> commission. on, um, on, um, on, on, on those two things. So yeah, so you, yeah, Larko was right, but yeah, you mix the stories. Mix the stories up, that's what it was. Yeah. Tremendous. Okay. Uh, while we're rattling off these names, because people will love this stuff. What was Louder like? And can I, if you will forgive my indulgence, I'll share a little story with you. This is about you, not me. But the Rush movie, when it happened, they asked me to go to the premiere in Melbourne and I got to meet Daniel Brühl, the actor who's been in Inglorious Bastards and other things, and he played Nicky Louder in the movie. And I was asked to do a you know, 10 or 15-minute chat with him before the, you know, before the movie premiered. And I said to him, invariably as actors do, you try and get into character by understanding the person and, and what they're like and so on. And he said, oh, yes, yes, yes. I I tried several times to get hold of Nicky, but he wouldn't take my call. And he eventually took my call. And when the call came through, it was like 6 a.m. in the morning. And Nicky says, okay, I suppose we have to meet now. Just bring hand luggage to Vienna. That way, if we don't like each other, you can just piss back off to where you came from. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought that was just fantastic. And ironically... Um, he and Brule, I think, uh, got on pretty well and, and Daniel learnt a lot from him. So what was he like to well, – that's their great stories that you've shared there before. What was he, he like to be around in that great period? Smart people. Mm. Smart people. Mm. And, you know, and you, you – a lot of the time I just listened and when I was around them, you just look and listen and learn and see how they operate. Mm. Good guy, honest to the day. And as it turned out over the years, him and Nels became very close, okay. very, very close friends. In fact, Nels uh, is not a funeral-related person, but he actually went and was one of the pallbearers at his wow. at his funeral. funeral. Mm. Um, but once again, just learning. You know, mm. when you sort of – back to when I got in the get-go, you learn off Ron Turner. Can you just see how these people operate? And, and they're one step ahead of everyone. Mm. They really are. And, you know, I, I, I don't think I, I'm that clever. Um, but you just sit back and, and learn. And the relationship we had and the deal we had in Australia was just just good, just really good. Keki Rosberg. Oh, yeah. Keki Rosberg. <laughs> yeah, he, he says uh, Keki Rosberg, and he, he, he was an early, earlier version of Kimi Raikkonen. Was he? But more outgoing. But yeah. he was good, yeah. really good. And, uh, and I got to know him in 78 when he was in New Zealand mm -hmm. racing against Larry. Yep. Um, and then he came back and, and raced in, uh, he got involved with Enzyme or no Theodore racing. I think mm -hmm. it was, but no, no good. Once again, just great guys, just, mm. just professional, mm. just sharpest tax and, and, and good to work with, you know, and, and very easy that those deals, you know, people think that they used to say those deals were different. They were just easy. They were just easy deals to do because you're, you're doing deals when you're negotiating or doing deals with their name or they're sitting in the room. Mm. No problem. No problem. So while we're rattling off a few names here, Gerhard Berger, 
you've known him for quite some time, haven't Gosh, you? Gosh, I'm not name dropping him. No, I? no, that's the thing. <laughs> I'm doing this because I know what you're like. You're you're unlikely to do that, but I want I want to, if you're comfortable, share a little bit of the incredible world that you've you've had. You know, for this bloke that left Australia, chased a dream. Um, took a little bit of a, a, a turn from what was race driving, but but made a really good life out of it by being around these people and, and having their respect and rapport. So, you know, to think that you could have this this lengthy friendship with someone like Gerhard. Well, is, Gerhard, mm. Gerhard started, so this goes back to, so I don't know whether you're following a pattern here, but the Gerhard started back, so in 1984, Correct me if I'm wrong, if not 84, 85, I had negotiated another deal mm -hmm. with the Bob Jane Corporation. Much to the angst of the financial director, Murray Riding, <laughs> who's no longer with us. And I would sow a seed with Bob. Bob would hand on to Alan Coleman, who was the marketing director of the corporation, and then Murray Riding would be money. Mm -hmm. And when I used to walk into the corporation, into the financial area, Mori would look up and he would say, oh, my God, here comes Mr. Reverse Cash Flow. <laughs> here comes Mr. Reverse Cash Flow. So in 1984, correct me, you, uh, 85, I'd, we negotiated a deal that we're going to do Bathurst in a BMW mm -hmm. because Nels was racing for um, Bernie with uh, BMW engine, engines. Yep. And Nikki and... Nels, we're going to do the race. Mm -hmm. So this never came out in the open. It didn't materialise. Um, and this was just an, an idea. I thought, Nels again to come out and mm -hmm. we'll all make some money and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> anyway, it didn't happen because in that same year, I think in the middle of the year, uh, Nikki uh, was racing at Zolder. The, 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 the track had dilapidated mm -hmm. and he went off and he sprained or broke his wrist. Mm -hmm. So that didn't wasn't going to happen. Mm -hmm. The boss of BMW Motorsport, Dieter Stuppert, uh, who was privy to all this, wanted this still to happen. And so I was not keen on that because he said, well, I'll give you my two works driver, which were Roberto Ravaglia and, and uh, uh, Johnny Chicotto. Mm -hmm. So I then said, look, I don't know. I'll let me speak to the sponsors if they're interested and said, yes, we'll do it. So I went, I went over to Europe and had a meeting with, um, with Dieter and then we went to a place called Freilassing mm -hmm. and then got introduced to the Schnitzer family mm -hmm. and particularly Charlie, Charlie Lamb, Lamb. Yep. Yep. who was also my age mm -hmm. and we just have a great, we had a great rapport and friendship and trust again. And then through that, uh, all his drivers he had at the time, Dieter Cuesta, Johnny, um, uh, Roberto, Gerhard, and that's where the Gerhard thing came into okay. play. Okay. So he was racing touring cars for Schnitzer, as mm -hmm. well as doing Formula One, I think at the time, maybe Arrows mm -hmm. with a BMW engine. Mm -hmm. So then that relationship with Gerhard started to the extent that I think we're in Adelaide and that BMW I kept here after Bathurst and Gerhard raced it at um, Adelaide, Adelaide. Okay. In, in the touring car race. But uh, we started from the back of the grid because he couldn't do, do the qualifying because of Formula One commitment. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, he was tearing through the field and then he got – pushed off by slug by Johnny Harvey into the mm. kitty litter and, and that was that. So I don't know, just over the years we've just kept in touch, touch. through the Schnitz, Schnitzer connection mm, yep. and where there were functions on with uh, Charlie and his twin brother at the time anywhere in Europe, Gio would invariably always would be there. Mm. And then I would go to races and because of our friendship and, oh, you know, well, I mean, I don't know what to say. I mean, you know, he'd say, well, come to me with England. So you'd jump in his jet and you'd go to England or go wherever. And so we just have, and to the extent we still have that friendship today. Um, and um, I convinced him to send his nephew out to New Zealand to the TRS, TRS about five series, years ago, yeah. his sister's son. Mm -hmm. And I'd spoken to Gard and, and said, um, you know, to come to New Zealand and, and, um, yeah, Gerard was just not aware of it. He probably thought the cars in New Zealand um, had three wheels on them and all this sort of thing because <laughs> his nephew was running Formula BMW in Asia. Mm -hmm. And there was just another thing. Then he just told his sister, he said, listen, Lucas is going to Australia to do this thing. Do New Zealand just ring Peewee and everything could be done. So I did all the contracts and whatever. Excellent. So. Excellent. And then subsequently 
Lucas came back three years later and, and we went off to Japan. In fact, you know, I still talk regularly to Lugi. Well, he talks to me about his contracts that are coming up and or mm. when they come up and whatever. So we still have a, a you know, a great relationship with Gerhard. We'll get to that. I love the fact that you have this um, eye on what young talent are doing and some of the different series around the world where they're mm. emerging and, uh, and, and so on. Can we get to, in, in wrapping up the component about Bob Jane and, and some of those races they put on before we, we got that uh, Formula One status and Adelaide took off and, and so on, you brought out Mike Dudson as well, incredibly respected journalist um, to this day. I, I think the story goes, did you did you ring him and organise a plane ticket and you were sort of, so it wasn't just the drivers. Where I'm going here is that you were you must have been helping them to um, spread the word on this showcase, this race that they were they were doing in Australia at the time, because I think you you brought him out here, you got him out here, didn't you? Well, yeah, well, yeah, there was a bit of an ulterior motive there. Mm. I mean, given that he was a credible, respected journal sure. in the UK, well, he still is, yes. um, and and we have a friendship now to this day. But yeah, I brought him out. I mean, it well, Roberto, we mm. wanted to get mileage in the press. Mm. Um, now. Was it bribery? Could be. Called it bribery. I'm not sure. But no, I facilitated an air ticket for him uh, to come out and and to give the event mileage because, you know, it was Australia. Mm. Australia had done very little of any significance in terms of motor racing. New Zealand had Mm. uh, through the Tasman series more recognised in New Zealand than Australia. Mm. And so, no, I said, Mike, would you come out? And I had a, uh, I don't know, I can't remember where our relationship. I mean, I guess maybe in the 78, I mean, when you're kicking goals, Mm. you know, the the adage that uh, winners are grinners Mm. and people want to be around winners and, you know, and so once again, you know, you understand that and respect that, getting bit back to my analogy of riding the wave mm. and so you just make sure that when you want something that you get people involved to help facilitate and, and, and that's what right, I did and the I right brought, people I brought, mm. and, the, and the right people mm. and I brought him out here yes excellent mm. there is a story of legend around that that people can find um online I think about it Jonesy and LP engines and and was it was it a watch sponsor that Jonesy had at the time and <laughs> things like that I, I have to go and find the uh, about that first race? Oh, I don't know if it was the first race, but it was one of the races. Certainly, the one that Mike came to, and and well, it uh, was it was look, it was the first race, so, mm-hmm. and, and look once again, um, you know, there was certainly no love lost between Nels and Alan, mm-hmm. um, and still not to this day. So the call to racetrack is is a very very. It was probably the hardest races for me ever to win. Wow, it's forty seconds. Mm-hmm. You know, and there's three corners. Yes, so everything has to be spot on. And so what I did also, unbeknown, so I got Johnny Nick engines, mm-hmm. right? And, and we we were aware that Alan was going to be doing the race. I, I can't remember who he was doing it with mm-hmm. or what. He had a Rolt, obviously. And so the other component was tyres. Mm-hmm. And so what it was that there was a company called M&H Tyres, mm-hmm. which was a subsidiary of Cooper Tyres America. And I was aware and, and the distributor of that was IR, IRTS, mm-hmm. um, which was a company owned by Bernie. And I was aware that a very shrewd chemist, like he was in his 50s at the time, had left Goodyear and gone to this M&H stroke Cooper mob in mm-hmm. the UK to make tyres. And so I was aware of that. So I went out to IRTS and I said, listen, we're doing this race in Australia. Nelson's coming and Roberto's coming and I want some tyres and I want some good tyres and I want this because I knew I'll, the, the chap's name I, I can't recollect now and That's I want right. him to to do the comments in our tyres. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, Pee-wee. Uh, Jean Monnier was the French guy running the company for a bit. Oh, yeah, Pee-wee, we'll do all this and, you know, but it's going to cost this. And I, and I said, no, 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 I'm, I'm not paying. So I told Nels the story and I said, okay, Nels, you need to come to this meeting with me. Mm-hmm. So I bring Nels to the meeting. And of course, you know, when you bring Nels, you know, into meetings, people, <laughs> their, their backs stiffen up and they start paying attention. And, Which you observe. Yes. And so, and so basically that worked. So we obviously got all the ties with nothing. So the, 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 the score was with it. There's no way that Alan Jones was allowed to buy these ties. Okay. And so that was the deal. Uh-huh. And so th- that was the deal negotiated with Jean Monnier. And this obviously would have been fed back to Bernie because Bernie owned this 
distribution company, tyre mm. distribution company. And so it got it ticked. And so we got our tyres. In fact, I remember coming to Calder, mm. uh, to Sydney, and we were testing out at um, Oran Park the tyres with mm -hmm. Nels. And the Cooper distributor here in Australia, his name escapes me again, but he had a Mercedes and he had a car phone, which I thought was, this is pretty damn good. <laughs> and so we're ringing, we're doing the tyre testing, we're ringing the chemist, the, the, the... From the car. From the car back to England, <laughs> telling exactly what was going with the tyres. So they were making adjustments to the compounds of the tyres. On the go. On the go. And wow. then send us out the tyres, yeah. yeah. So that was, yeah, so Mike was privy to that and he yeah. that was that first race, yes. Amazing. That's the end of part one of my podcast with respected driver manager Greg Siddle. How's the access and the names? The good news for you is we are not done yet. There is roughly another hour of chat all parked up and ready for you to enjoy right now in the Rusty's Garage Library. How he convinced Ralph Furman that the Aussie market was worth playing in and the incredible talent that would get behind the wheel of Van Diemen machinery and succeed in the years that followed. The advice that Mark Webber ignored in the early years and that turned out to be the right call. A young man with speed and incredible determination who just wanted to keep climbing. Meeting a young Sam Michael and actively encouraging his bright engineering talent to go to Formula One and the introductions he helped facilitate for Sam. Telling Larco to take the emotion out of the decision and the depth of friendship they share. Peewee is like a father to him. Plus the next wave of driving talent he keeps an eye on in junior categories right round the world. His long-term working relationships with manufacturers, the origins of his nickname and much, much more. <laughs>